Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is Of Roe, Rights, and Reconciliation. On the British Columbia coast, the Heltsik First Nation asserts its right to manage its resources and who has access to them through the seasonal herring harvest. Written by Ian Gill and read by me, Adam Dubow. The waters of Spiller Channel are dark cobalt blue, the sea's surface chopped by a wind that knifes out of the north. The sky is a gray blanket from which snowflakes shake loose over our skiff as it speeds toward a point just shy of Tate Lagoon. Paradoxically, the snow signals a warming trend along the central coast of British Columbia, the first hint of spring. The previous day, the last of March, had been what airplane pilots refer to as severe clear, bright blue sky with lips and fingertips to match. Yesterday was so cold, says Louisa Housty-Jones, a Heltsick First Nation project manager, and at this time of the year, a devotedly single-minded harvester of one of the great prizes on Canada's west coast, Pacific herring, or what the Heltsick refer to as Wane. I'm surprised my hand didn't drop off, Housty Jones says, having spent most of the previous day immersing her arm over and over again in the frigid waters as she prepared an elaborate underwater ambush for the incoming herring tide. Housty Jones, the boat's captain, instructs boat operator Ian Wilson to slow her skiff as we near waters strung with lines and buoys so as not to spook any fish. He then idles the engine as a gentle swell pushes us shoreward, and soon we are upon the first of Housty Jones's five lines of rope tied off on the shore and kept afloat by buoys. From these lines hang fresh-cut hemlock boughs and strands of kelp weighted with rocks, creating a perfect natural sieve for apprehending herring, or rather, their roe. It is the Heltsik First Nation's good fortune to have within its traditional territory some of the premier fishing sites in Canada for herring, which muster here each spring in a timeless ritual that, for the Heltsik and other coastal indigenous peoples, is a source of both reverence and sustenance. Wow, this is crazy, Wilson says, his voice rising an octave upon spying layers of herring eggs on the submerged kelp fronds. They spawned, Louisa, they spawned! It is only Wilson's second season on the herring grounds, so this is still pretty new. Housty Jones, 46, an industrious grandmother who's been doing herring since she was 13, is all business. But even she allows a smile acknowledging not just the return of the herring, but also that she's judged correctly where to set her lines and that the harvest promises to be good again. Between Housty Jones and her seven crew members, there is a 1,542-kilogram quota to fill and no time to waste. Housty Jones also has a new outboard motor to pay for and needs to get her share. The annual herring row harvest constitutes a movable feast, which keeps everyone guessing when the herring will arrive and in what numbers. Preparations have been underway for weeks. Boats bailed, engines tuned and tested. Ropes, buoys, and tarps rounded up. Licenses purchased and crews signed on. Kelp and hemlock boughs harvested and transported to the herring grounds. Lots of jostling for prime shoreline sites to set lines. 
and constant scans of the early reports from test boats and spotter planes searching for the first signs of herring. The excitement is palpable as winter storms give way to herring weather, a time when, according to Heltzik lore, the moon tips over because it is so full of herring. Their arrival in such vast numbers is so momentous, it marks what the Heltzik consider to be the start of their new year. This year, the spawn coincides with another movable feast, Easter. On this Easter Sunday, the children's chocolate egg hunt in the village of Bella Bella is as urgent as anywhere, but it is gladly dispensed with at an early hour by adults who make up the dozens of crews hurrying onto the water to harvest a very different kind of Easter egg. All around the world, it is Resurrection Day, including in the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest. It's also a time, decades in the making, when Hostie Jones and hundreds of her fellow Heltzik are wresting back control and management of their fishery and resurrecting ancient ways of harvesting that have supported one of North America's oldest fishing cultures since time out of mind. Bella Bella, population about 1,300, is a remote community on Canada's rugged 27,200-kilometer Pacific coastline. It is situated on a famed marine highway, the Inside Passage, roughly halfway between Vancouver and the British Columbia-Alaska border. The village is accessible only by airplane, boat, or ferry. Administratively, the colonizing governments call this place Bella Bella Indian Reserve No. 1, located on Campbell Island, and Heltzik Traditional Territory is considered part of the Central Coast Regional District, the Great Bear Rainforest North Timber Supply Area, and Fisheries Management Area 7 Pacific Region. Wagnizla, meaning river on the beach, is the Heltzik name for Bella Bella. In the Heltzik language, the names of tribes reflect our cherished relationship to water, says Sal Brown, an eloquent negotiator for his nation, self-described food sovereigntist and springtime herring skipper. This language, and the worldview it embodies, doesn't much feature in the dry language of federal resource management plans. One reason Brown believes the Heltzik are continually at odds with resource management decisions made by other governments. In fact, the Heltzik and dozens of other tribes the length of the B.C. coast have been warring with the colonizers of British Columbia in one form or another since contact. It was to unfetter access to abundant resources, forests, fish, wildlife, minerals, that colonial governments herded Canada's indigenous people onto tiny reserves, welfared them as wards of the state, ignored their hereditary governance systems, and stole their children in what Canada's highest judge referred to in 2015 as attempted cultural genocide. British Columbia's First Nations have a lengthy list of grievances that only lately have begun to be taken seriously by the governments of Canada and British Columbia. On the coast, those grievances are rarely more deeply felt than when it comes to marine resources, most famously Pacific salmon, one of the most celebrated symbols of the West Coast. It's a staple of indigenous cultures and ceremonies, a critical source of food, the basis for extensive trade among nations, and access to it is the subject of bitter debates and plenty of court cases. But as charismatic as salmon are, 
bodies of traditional ecological knowledge dating back thousands of years reveal that herring are just as, if not more important to the Pacific Coast marine ecosystem and to tribes ranging from Alaska through British Columbia to Washington State. As forage fish, herring are vital fuel for marine food chains, nourishing everything from whales and sea lions to larger fish and seabirds. On the beach, their eggs feed wolves, bears, and birds, providing a seasonal pulse of food and fertilizer to coastal ecosystems. For their human predators, herring are valuable not just as food, as a source of omega-3-rich oil, as bait, and, of course, for the roe, but also because their arrival awakens other prey in a swirl of activity in the water, on land, and in the air, making hunting and fishing of other species easier both before and after the spawn. Traditionally, herring were also the first fresh fish to show up after long winters when people relied largely on dry goods. Then, as now, says Harvey Humchit, everything revolves around the herring. Humchit is a hereditary chief. Traditionally, the hereditary chiefs and their right-hand men and women oversaw the management of herring, guided by customary laws, teachings, and beliefs. So it was for thousands of years, until contact and the commencement in the 1870s of commercial fisheries, regulated under a fisheries act that robbed indigenous people of their right to fish except for food, and even then under onerous restrictions and ignored indigenous management systems and fishing methods. Non-Aboriginal fishermen got largely unfettered access to harvest herring, and harvest they did, especially with the advent of fleet mechanization and the introduction in the 1930s of a reduction fishery, which rendered herring into fish meal or oil. By the 1960s, this huge kill fishery had taken billions of fish and pretty much wiped out stocks to the point that the entire fishery was closed in British Columbia between 1969 and 1972. Populations rebounded sufficiently, at least according to government and industry, to warrant reopening herring fishing in the 1970s. Despite what were touted as improvements in stock assessment and fisheries management, the kill fishery remained just that. Fisheries and Oceans Canada would announce openings, often of just a few hours, that mobilized massive industrial purse and gill netters to converge on prime areas like Spiller Channel. In stark contrast to the open pond style of fishery practiced by the Heltzik, targeting just the row, leaving the herring alive to spawn again several times during their lifespan, commercial sack row openings are Wild West smash-and-grab affairs. Openings of short duration encourage commercial skippers to scoop up tons of fish at a time and urgently reset their nets. As far as the eye could see, Spiller used to be lined with seine boats, says veteran marine conservationist Ian McAllister of Pacific Wild. McAllister has lived and worked in the region for decades and says the seine fleet is industrial mayhem compared with the quiet, elegant, simple fishery that the Heltzik pursue. Sea lions caught in their nets. Airbanger explosives to discourage the sea lions, making a huge noise underwater. Some of the loudest sonars on the coast. Industrial winches, the clanking of machinery. A cacophony of sound you can hear from miles away. The commercial fishery created havoc on the water, says William Helsty, a respected Helsic cultural leader and natural resources manager. 
It's just like a hurricane, this foreign thing that causes disruption to everything, not least the health of herring stocks themselves. Yet, despite every indication of overkill, McAllister says, still the commercial fishery was reauthorized year after year. One study confirms that three of the five major herring populations in British Columbia declined over the last several decades that the commercial fishery was back in business. Industry's insistence that Department of Fisheries and Oceans keep the fishery open triggered vehement opposition from many First Nations and sometimes heated confrontations on the water, including in Spiller Channel in 2006 when Helsic boats massed in protest against the Seine fleet, paddling an ocean-going canoe into the middle of a purse net setting to disrupt it. One member was arrested as a result. Eventually, Department of Fisheries and Oceans couldn't ignore the obvious. The commercial fishery was closed in three areas where populations had declined. Haida Gwaii, an archipelago off the northern BC coast in 2005, on the west coast of Vancouver in 2006, and in Area 7 in Heltzik Waters in 2008. Even though they didn't have to, the Heltzik voluntarily suspended their own herring harvest. For a while, at least, Herring were given a breather amid an uneasy standoff between the commercial fleet, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and First Nations. And then, along came 2015. We paddled over mostly women and children, Saul Brown recalls, of the day the Heltzik took the matter of their herring fishery into their own hands. We made a decision to protect our rights, says Kelly Brown, a longtime natural resources planner and negotiator for the Heltzik, and today, Director of the Heltzik Integrated Resource Management Department. To do that, you have to go 100% all in. In late March 2015, the Heltzik and Department of Fisheries and Oceans, whose local office is on Denny Island, a short hop by boat from Bella Bella, were at an impasse about whether or not a commercial fishery should be authorized by the department. The Heltzik were implacably opposed to lifting the eight-year moratorium on the fishery. They were well within their rights to stand fast against a commercial opening. Back in 1996, two Heltzik men, Donald and William Gladstone, won a landmark decision at the Supreme Court of Canada that affirmed that the Heltzik had practiced a commercial fishery, selling to each other and trading with other tribes since before European contact, and still had a right to do so. The court had earlier in the 1990 Sparrow decision, settled a doctrine of priority that put conservation of stocks as a first priority, followed by an aboriginal right to food, social and ceremonial fish, then an aboriginal commercial fishery, and only then, and only if herring stocks were healthy enough to allow it, a non-aboriginal fishery. Yet, almost two decades after the Gladstone case, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans' decision-making in the field still seemed guided by the demands of the industry. In practice, the Gladstone ruling didn't confer any real authority on the Heltzik, and there was growing frustration that what little consultation did happen was just a bureaucratic merry-go-round. So, in 2015, when word reached the community that commercial seine boats had been fishing up in Spiller, surreptitiously authorized to do so by Department of Fisheries and Oceans, that doctrine of priority suddenly looked a lot like a doctrine of deceit. William Helsty says Department of Fisheries and Oceans' actions were just so wrong. Besides not informing the health sick they'd approved of fishery, the DFO also allowed fish from a test set 
fish that normally should be released, to be sent for commercial sale. As well, they signaled to gillnet fishermen that a commercial opening in Spiller Channel would be forthcoming. All this after the Heltzik had shared with Department of Fisheries and Oceans their forecast that the size of returning herring stocks did not justify any industrial-scale fishery. Brown's father, Frank Brown, and a few community members went over to Denny Island, where they put fisheries officers on notice that, as far as the Heltzik were concerned, the fishery was closed. That message was reinforced with a traditional Heltzik song and drumming. Meanwhile, at a meeting in the United Church in Bella Bella, members of the Heltzik Tribal Council agreed with a council of hereditary chiefs to sign off on an eviction notice to be served on Department of Fisheries and Oceans. The next day, Saul Brown led a canoe party over to Denny Island. Other band members took a water taxi. About 50 or 60 Heltzik rallied outside the office, and eventually, someone pinned an eviction notice to the door jam. Saul Brown recalls that after they served the Department of Fisheries and Oceans the eviction notice, his fellow Heltzik started to leave. This is bullshit, he said to them. Why are we leaving? A number of band members then occupied the Coast Guard office downstairs. When Kelly Brown and the elected chief of the Heltzik First Nation, Marilyn Slett, arrived from the village to reinforce demands to shut the proposed gillnet fishery, they were allowed into the Department of Fisheries and Oceans office, but the protesters were not. So Brown and Slett locked down the office with themselves and several Department of Fisheries and Oceans officers inside and refused to leave. In fact, they stayed there four days. Word of the occupation reached Vancouver, 500 kilometers to the south, and caught the attention of big city media. Up on Denny Island, the Heltzik dug in. The building was surrounded around the clock by band members offering food, security, and moral support to their leaders. They also brought songs, in particular a song that had been written just weeks earlier about Herring's role in the vitality of our culture, Saul Brown said. It wasn't intended as a protest song, but it instantly became an anthem for what we were doing. Singing that Herring song, it was medicine at the time. When the occupation ended, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans had capitulated. While its official coast-wide summary of the 2015 herring fishery records a gillnet opening from noon until 8 p.m. on March 31st, not a single herring was caught in Area 7. Number of licenses, 60. Quota, 600 tons. Catch, zero, the summary says. Slet was jubilant. We did it. Spiller was our no-go zone and nobody went there. Perhaps even more significant in the long run was Department of Fisheries and Oceans' promise to forthwith manage the herring fishery in Area 7 jointly with the Heltzik, formally incorporating Heltzik knowledge and priorities into stock forecasts and management plans for the first time. That means having Heltzik observers on test boats. It means having Heltzik scientists on technical committees and Heltzik leadership providing advice on every aspect of the fishery. And it means joint sign-off on any decision to fish. The agreement has teeth. In 2016, the first season after the occupation of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans office, the harvest rate was lowered from 10 to 7% of available stocks, and there was a full closure of the Sacro fishery in Spiller Channel. In all, just 239 tons of herring were harvested on the central coast by Saners that year. The Heltzik, meanwhile, were allocated 109 tons of commercial row on kelp, 
usually referred to as spawn-on kelp in regulations. In 2017, the same quota was set at 219 tons, but by agreement between Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the HealthSick, the commercial fishery never opened. Again, the HealthSick spawn-on kelp quota was 109 tons that year. This year, the commercial fleet was lobbying hard for permission to again drop its nets in spiller, pushing for about 600 to 800 tons. But the Heltzik's interpretation of the data they had collected with Department of Fisheries and Oceans was that the stocks were still too weak for that. This year, there was a lot of pressure from our guys to say no, says Kelly Brown. Everybody said no, there's not enough herring, so no sacro fishery. That's what they told the Department of Fisheries and Oceans this past February. On March 1st, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans announced it had agreed to suspend the commercial row herring fishery on the Central Coast for 2018 after the HealthSick and the DFO had been unable to reach a shared understanding of stock health that would allow both a commercial and a HealthSick spawn-on-kelp fishery to proceed. The HealthSick spawn-on-kelp quota was actually increased to more than 136 tons. The commercial fishery was shut down completely. That absolutely did not go down well with industry, says Colin Masson, North Coast Area Director for Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Masson concedes that negotiating management agreements with First Nations and only then putting them out for wider review is a fundamentally different approach that doesn't just open the door for industry like it used to in the past. Housty says previous practice was that Department of Fisheries and Oceans and industry would negotiate management plans behind closed doors, and not until an integrated fisheries management plan was made public would First Nations get to see the plan and raise any objections. Masson says industry was shocked in 2015 when the Department of Fisheries and Oceans agreed to its joint management approach with the HealthSick, and to this day does not support it. Even inside the department, he says, there are some people saying it's gone too far. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans' HealthSick agreement is at the outer extent of how far we can go without compromising ministerial authority. I'm not sure the HealthSick appreciate how far this agreement has gone. Kelly Brown certainly seems to. It's the first time they've ever done that for any fishery anywhere, Brown says. No commercial fishery, not even a token one. How radical is that? When the federal Liberals came into power in 2015, they did so on a promise to honour the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, with its requirement to seek Indigenous people's free, prior, and informed consent over resource decisions affecting them. The government seems impossibly conflicted about how to do that in practice, especially when it comes to big-ticket items like pipelines and hydroelectric dams. When it comes to the Central Coast herring fishery, you have a First Nation that worked within a government-sanctioned collaborative process, insisted that their joint modelling did not satisfy the community that stocks could withstand a commercial fishery, told the government it did not have Indigenous consent to authorize an opening, and the government listened and acted accordingly. And then Easter rolled around and the herring rolled into town, and the Heltzik, and only the Heltzik, went fishing for herring row in Heltzik waters. Easter Monday. Louisa Housty-Jones and Ian Wilson are headed for Spiller Channel again. William Housty joins them in the skiff. Anticipation is high. On Sunday afternoon, the spawn in Spiller had been happening hard and fast in Ian McAllister's words. The herring are flooding into inlets and bays and lagoons, the females carpeting the shore with billions of tiny eggs. 
the male milt turning otherwise dark waters a milky pale green, the color of limetta gelato. With the herring have come all manner of other creatures looking for a feed. From McAllister's catamaran, I watch a large humpback whale working the shallows. Sea otters, dozens of eagles, flocks of surf scoters, gulls, sea lions, seals, and porpoises all dine out. McAllister, who is shooting an IMAX film on the Great Bear Rainforest, featuring, among other scenes, Saul Brown harvesting herring roe, guts a lingcod he caught for dinner, in its stomach, a good-sized herring. I later hop into Hosty Jones's punt to help with the harvest. She draws alongside a floating log that secures her network of hemlock boughs and kelp. All of us strain to see how big a share they've snagged. The punt tilts precipitously to port as all hands reach eagerly into the water. A tree bough is visible below, its fronds not green, but a creamy pale brown, almost beige color. A cord is cut, and the heavily laden bough is dragged alongside the skiff. Individual branches and fronds, weighed thickly with roe, are snipped off the main stem, dipped in the salt chuck and shaken, and then swung over the gunwale into a large hold lined with tarps. Why do you dip the eggs in the water, I innocently ask? To get the cum off, Hostie says. Well, that's straight and to the point, Hostie Jones says with a laugh. It takes about an hour to fill two of the punt's four open holds with row on hemlock fronds. Totes the size of large picnic coolers occupy a third hold, and into them, the crew places row that's been deposited on stringy or feather boa kelp, which locals consider a delicacy. The Heltsik call it yagya. A more common giant kelp hangs below the water surface on Hostie Jones's commercial sets. It's long, flat blades like vertical blinds in an office building. Row accumulates on either side of the kelp. The more layers, the better. The product will be graded for export as 1, 2, 3, J, or double J, which on the cross-section can measure several centimeters thick, the kelp itself looking like a thin piece of veneer between two thick layers of particle board. Or like an ice cream sandwich, with the ice cream on the outside. Housty Jones and the crew return to shore and offload their haul into the back of a pickup lined with tarps. In keeping with the doctrine of priority, her first harvest goes to her family for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. A portion of the Heltzik's harvest are routinely set aside to be traded locally and with other First Nations on the coast. Roe from their commercial sets is sent to the Heltzik-owned and operated fish plant in Bella Bella and then to market. The main export market for herring roe is Japan, where it is called kazunoko and is much sought after. At the Brown household that evening, dinner consists of roe on both stringy and flat kelp, elk meat from Vancouver Island, boiled potatoes, dried seaweed, and for dipping, the rich, much-adored oil from the sardine-sized oolican fish that spawns in just a few coastal BC rivers. So stridently fishy does it taste, it's like a wince-inducing marine version of Vegemite. Roe on kelp is rubbery to the touch, slightly sticky, depending on how thoroughly it was rinsed when it was harvested, and looks like miniature bubble wrap. It pops a bit like bubble wrap when you bite into it, too. Tiny explosions of ocean, crunchy and salty. It is delicious, albeit a taste like raw oysters or oolican grease or salmon eyeballs that takes some acquiring. Not everyone does. For Saul Brown, the finest taste of all is roe on hemlock bough. 
because it combines flavors from the lands and waters that the Heltzik holds so dear. It has a beautiful evergreen taste to it, and the egg itself tastes of the ocean, he says. It is the culinary embodiment of the interconnectedness of the land and the ocean. There are not many things I've had that can give you that experience. Saul Brown works as a Heltzik cheese toot negotiator, Hate cheese toot being a potlatch term meaning to turn things around and make it right again, which is how the Heltzik chose to define what others call reconciliation. For Brown, indeed for all Heltzik, turning the tide on how herring are managed in their territory is just one of the many steps toward actual rather than merely rhetorical decolonization. With the roe fishery in full swing, William Housty is bullish on the ability of the Heltzik to convert their success with herring into a new management paradigm for other marine species. Housty explains that as part of a reconciliation negotiation between the Heltzik and the federal government, the Heltzik have tabled their desire to manage all commercial fisheries in their traditional territory on their own terms. That's our intent, echoes Kelly Brown. Salmon and crab first— in the next 18 months, then gooey duck, then shellfish, and halibut. Colin Masson, of Department of Fisheries and Oceans, isn't sure the Heltzik herring agreement will translate easily to other species. Through the Gladstone decision, the Heltzik have a court-established right to a significant portion of the herring fishery, Masson says, but that doesn't hold for, say, gooey duck. The herring agreement is a completely different frame from how the department worked with First Nations before, he says, and he's hopeful that what will translate to other nations and other species is a collaborative process that recognizes Aboriginal rights, but takes into account other Canadians' priorities as well. Will that satisfy the Heltzik? This coming October, a first draft of a new Heltzik constitution will be presented to band members. Housty says the first piece of Heltzik legislation planned to flow out of that will be an Oceans Act. Canada already has one of those to manage its oceans and fisheries. Canada already has a constitution, too. But to the Heltzik, neither seem to reflect their vision of how to prosper as a nation. And you can bet a punt full of yeah, yeah that a constitution and an Oceans Act written by the Heltzik will read a lot differently from Canada's, and no doubt will be called something different, too. Something more. Well, Heltzik. Whether or not Canada will recognize a Heltzik constitution is an argument the Heltzik are spoiling to have. We're making that movement to self-government, slowly but surely, Housty says, and towards self-sufficiency. The Heltzik Integrated Resource Management Department issued 740 licenses to harvest individual quotas of herring roe this year. A huge number when you consider that the official on-reserve population of Bella Bella is not even twice that number. Although the population swells with band members returning for harvests, herring and salmon in particular. Despite a big spawn in Spiller Channel, a lot of the returning herring were juveniles, which just spawned for a few hours, not a few days like adults do. So some people missed out. But even if just half the crews were successful, Housty says, that's a huge infusion of otherwise scarce income for local people, mostly from sales of product to Japan. As for Housty Jones, she did okay in the end, partly because she finished setting her lines just a day before the spawn started. Everyone on her crew got their quota. Our product was really good, Housty Jones says. We got so much yagya. Her family's freezers are full, and she put aside 20 buckets to share at a potlatch later this year. 
The crew met their commercial quotas too and actually ended up with four extra totes of product they were able to share with community members in need. It was just last year, she recalls, that Dad said, well, you passed the test. And I said, what test? And he said, all this gear is yours now. She'd proven to him that she had the right stuff to captain her own boat. So that was huge, she says. This year, once the Heltzik marketing team negotiated with the Japanese and the final price for her herring was set, Housty Jones did well enough to pay for that new outboard motor and keep her gear in good shape for when the moon tips over again next spring. Find more coastal news and stories from Hakai Magazine on our website at www.hakaimagazine.com. All of our feature stories are part of the Hakai Magazine Audio Edition podcast, which you can subscribe to through your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with your friends. And don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The author would like to thank Saul Brown and Rory Housty for their invaluable assistance with the Heltzik language.